it's tapping into what is happening in communities right now where's the struggle what are people having you know challenges with and then helping to see the connection that the clean energy economy you know these green solutions can actually help solve a lot of those problems we can fight poverty and pollution at the same time absolutely eliminating uh, eliminating those tax preferences tax subsidies for fossil fuels we would definitely be on board with I think it's not about choosing, you know, some lower economic quality of life or, you know, a lower carbon way of life. I think that it's definitely possible to have both. And that's actually what gets me really excited. Cutting subsidies, updating building codes and offering electric vehicle ride sharing programs for rural farm workers. We're talking solutions on this show. Hello, I'm Julia Piper, senior editor at Green Tech Media, and this is Political Climate a bipartisan podcast on energy and environmental issues in America. A new landmark United Nations climate report concluded this week that world leaders have just 12 years to fundamentally restructure society if we are to avoid the most disastrous impacts of climate change. That means reforming the way we generate energy, manage land, build transit systems, among many other things. And it's not exactly an optimistic outlook, particularly in today's partisan political landscape. Still, a lot of people aren't giving up hope just yet. While the Trump White House has focused on freezing or rolling back many Obama-era climate policies, stakeholders of all kinds are still pushing forward for climate action at the city, state, and even federal level. In our last episode, we spoke to leaders at the Citizens Climate Lobby, a grassroots environmental organization, about why they're advocating for a federal carbon tax. In this episode, we're going to hear from experts from the clean economy group Green for All, the conservative think tank R Street Institute, and the policy firm Energy Innovation. They'll discuss the solutions they believe are necessary and politically feasible to advance as the threat of climate change looms large. We recorded this episode on the sidelines of last month's Global Climate Action Summit, where I was joined by Brandon Hurlbut, our Democrat, partner at Boundary Stone Partners, and former chief of staff at the Department of Energy under President Obama. And by Shane Skelton, our Republican, partner at S2C Pacific, and former energy advisor to House Speaker Paul Ryan. And with that, on with the show. We're excited to be joined now by Michelle Romero, Deputy Director with Green for All. Uh, Thank you for coming on. And it'd be great to start with a little more uh, detail on what it is Green for All does. Yeah, so at Green for All, it's very simple. We're advocating for Green for All. It's not green for some. It's got to be for everyone. So it's about how we deliver a clean economy that will lift up all communities. So how do you do that? What are the specific policy measures you, you'd like to promote? Yeah, you know, one of the things is carbon pricing and figuring out how we really are going to shift the billions of dollars that are on the table from polluter pockets into poor communities to do really great things like electric van pools for migrant farm worker towns to solve mobility access issues, right? How to weatherize homes and bring down energy bills for struggling low-income residents. And so it's really about how we can clean up our communities and make sure that polluters are held accountable for the damage that they're doing. So in this scenario, you have the carbon price, the carbon tax, and it's through that mechanism that you have these other programs that come to be rather than, say, working at the city level, state level to do those programs independently of the carbon tax. Or are you doing all of the above? I mean, it's, it's all of the above, right? you got to work at the local level. You have to work at the state level and at the federal level. Right now, there's not a whole lot going on positive uh, around climate 
and clean energy at the federal level. And so it's incumbent on all of us to lead from wherever we are, whether it's greening up your school, converting your school buses to 100% zero emission buses, or whether it's, you know, at the city, state, exact, all these different levels. And it's not just a carbon price, right? So a carbon price is not going to solve the climate crisis alone. Like we need actual policies that are going to curb the pollution. We've got to get off of fossil fuels. Um, I know the state of California just committed to 100% clean energy, which is great. And that's great that we're going to use clean energy. But if we keep fracking here and exporting our pollution elsewhere, what kind of neighbors are we, right? So we have to make sure that we're not doing that um, either. And so carbon pricing, you know, I mentioned is one of the things that we're working on. There's some great bills happening in Oregon State, the Clean Energy Jobs Act. Uh, In Washington, there's a ballot initiative. Voters will be able to vote on 1631. We say yes on 1631. um, And that's going to raise hundreds of millions of dollars. That's a carbon pricing bill, correct? It's yeah, you it's a fee on carbon that invests back into uh, impacted workers, creating clean energy jobs and cleaning up Washington state. What's the Clean Energy Jobs Act? What does that look like? So the Clean Energy Jobs Bill is very similar to what we have going on here in California. So it's going to create a cap and trade system where um, polluters will be charged for their pollution. And then the advantage, though, of Oregon coming after California is that in California, we figured out some of the problem. You know, if you are raising all this revenue from polluters, but not using it to improve the communities that these polluters have been harming, um, then you really aren't going to accelerate the clean economy. And so we have a fix for that in California, where we now finally direct um, our cap and trade dollars into the poorest and most polluted communities. Oregon's built that into their clean energy jobs policy. And so, um, you know, we're really on a, on a good path there. So I noticed that you identify them as polluters. By calling them polluters, I'm guessing, do you work with businesses at all to help them green their processes or is it more of a combative sort of back and forth when you're looking just at the business the business sector yeah we work with everybody we work with anybody who's willing to work on good solutions right and so it's not you know there's not a blanket for who's good and who's bad we're all here we're all at the table at the end of the day we all live on this planet and I think we all care about our kids having a, a clean future or a future at all right and so we'll work with anybody um, and we know there's a lot of great businesses who are doing positive things to clean up their manufacturing, to clean up their operations. And so um, we work with all kinds. So there's people at this conference this week who are talking about how the actions that are on the table today aren't going far enough. And specifically, a lot of people from, say, indigenous communities and who have been affected the most by climate change or by pollution. So what do you say to the people that are calling for more? Yeah, I mean, I think that they're needed in this movement, frankly. They hold all of us accountable to not rest on our laurels. Um, We have to advocate for solutions aggressively. You know, climate change isn't slowing down. Even as we're planning this Global Climate Action Summit, a lot of the people who've come into town for this are having to leave early because of the hurricane that's coming. I mean, climate change is happening even as we're planning our work. And so, um, you know, what do I say? I say that we, we really need to listen. I think that sometimes it's hard to hear a message when underserved, you know, low-income communities, communities of color have sort of been left on the outside of some of these spaces. And so they've been left to the streets and they do then what they can do, protesting and things like that. But I think that if we could actually sit down and have a conversation about what they're really asking for, they're just asking for us not to pollute and poison their communities and think that it's okay, right? It's not okay. These are the communities, you know, black and brown communities, poor communities that have been thrown away, 
they've been disregarded. And so when we talk about cleaning up the planet and we're looking at overall emissions reductions, right, we need to be thinking about local emission reductions, too, and making sure that um, we're doing that for everybody. So obviously we're here in San Francisco. We're at the Global Climate Action Summit. This is the topic of the day. I'm guessing you guys are active throughout the country. And um, when you are out there doing your grassroots work, whether it's in you know, a state like Washington or a state like Alabama, do you find that this issue resonates? Um, is it Does it resonate more or less around election season? Does it resonate more or less in different areas? Or sort of how do you adjust your strategy based on the community that you're in? Yeah. Usually it's messaging. Most people in their day-to-day lives aren't talking about climate change. It's not something we talk about at Thanksgiving. It's not some, you know, you don't have these conversations around the dinner table usually. People care about jobs. People care about being able to have healthy food. People care about their kids being healthy. Um, they care about sometimes the transportation access issues. You know, I brought up rural communities earlier. So out in the Central Valley here in California, we have a community in Huron that's four hours away from the children's hospital on a public bus. Well, you think that's an eight hour round trip commute in a city, in a county that has high asthma rates because they're the valley, right? All of the pollution sort of collects there. How do you even get healthcare access. So whether you're in the coasts or other parts of the country, it's tapping into what is happening in communities right now? Where's the struggle? What are people having, you know, challenges with? And then helping to see the connection that the clean energy economy, you know, these green solutions can actually help solve a lot of those problems. We can fight poverty and pollution at the same time. So maybe climate issues aren't coming up at the dinner table, but do you think they could come up at the ballot box? Are you seeing the communities that you work with getting animated around this when it comes to voting in elections? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think a perfect example is what's happening in Florida right now, right? Um, After Hurricane Maria, our federal government really abandoned Puerto Ricans in their time of need. And now hundreds Wait, of thousands... Trump said it was a big success. Are you kidding me? Yeah. Uh, I don't know how... You, know, you might need to go look in the dictionary, <laughs> the, the word success. Uh, it was... Shane, do you think it was a success? I don't know enough about the Puerto Rico recovery effort. I do know that their electric <laughs> Come grid, on, Shane. You're uh, burying your head in the sand? No, Come on. look. The, 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 thousands of people died. Of they course. didn't have electricity for months. Natural disasters are awful. Awful, awful, awful. Always awful. And, you know, I'm one of the Republicans working on these issues to try to mitigate the, the worst effects of climate change. But I'm not going to pretend to be an expert on the Puerto Rico recovery effort. I don't know. Well, I just want to appreciate you for saying that, right? I mean, it's the conversation around climate change in this country has gotten so polarized that for a Republican to come out and say, actually, we need to do something about it, right? We need to actually admit that it's happening and figure out the solutions, even if we don't always agree on the solutions. I think that's really brave and I commend you. But I think, you know, when you're talking about at the ballot box, right? So hundreds of thousands of Puerto Ricans have now fled from Puerto Rico. They're in the States now. They're U.S. citizens, right? Puerto Rico is a territory of the United States. They can vote. And so we're seeing a lot of um, energy in Central Florida and other parts where they've now had to move around showing their power at the ballot box and having a say in what's going on from Congress to the state to local and being able to get people in office who are going to do something about Puerto Rico and What's going on all over the country? Is there any concern that uh, even in California that, you know, lower income Californians will get left behind by this green energy transition? I know there's already tension around subsidizing, say, Teslas, you know, that there's a state level tax credit for electric vehicles that have disproportionately benefited wealthier people. It feels to me like there could be a gap where a lot of Californians say, I can't pay my bills and you're advocating for 100 percent renewables. You are missing 
you know, that is an off the mark kind of policy to prioritize because California is becoming an expensive state. So just keeping it local here, I guess, how do you make sure that those communities don't actually get left behind? Oh, absolutely. I mean, they're getting left behind. <laughs> That's, yeah, the rate at which we need to close this gap. And the, and the thing is, if we could all just understand that transitioning to a clean, green economy presents opportunities that are unprecedented, we can actually solve poverty and pollution at the same time. There are co-benefits to a lot of these green solutions, like I mentioned earlier, improving healthcare access, improving transportation mobility, like just for people from one neighborhood to be able to get around town to where the good jobs are in another part of neighborhood, right? So that they can have access to those opportunities, not lose their job because the public bus system is so limited that if they miss it, you know, they're missing days of work and that affects their performance. So there are a lot of ways that these green solutions can solve multiple problems. And I think when we get smart about that we get smart about how we um, spend our time there's a lot of of impact that we can make so it's worth pointing out to our listeners that we're at a carbon tax event at the global climate action summit so we've talked to people um, nonpartisan uh, from the right to the left libertarian and then there are you know business leaders i think exxon mobiles here um, i think other electric utilities here Everyone here is in this in this building is supporting a carbon tax. I think there are huge differences in what they would want to do with the money or what the policy trade-offs would be. And when you look at a path forward, understanding that probably if there were a carbon tax, no one's going to get everything that they want. What do you view as worthwhile trades and impermissible trades? You know, that's hard to say without, you know, it's like, I think every policy, the politics around everything is really important. I have um, basically five principles that we sort of uh, use to guide our work around carbon pricing, right? The first is communities of color need to be at the table. They're the most impacted by the pollution. If we're talking about cleaning up, they have to be at the table. The second is that there's got to be dedicated investments. So just pricing pollution alone isn't enough to shift the transition, we need, like I mentioned, right, solutions that are really going to accelerate the pace at which we're solving this climate crisis, or we're all in in for it, right? So um, by using the funds to invest in green infrastructure, we're going to grow green businesses, we're going to help scale and get into harder to reach markets that don't adopt solar because they can't afford the solar panels, that don't get into electric vehicles because they don't have the money for a Tesla. I mean, that's for sure. I don't have money for a Tesla, right? And even if I did, it's, well, is there charging infrastructure anywhere where I live where I can feel that it's a reliable thing, you know? And, and so some of these other things, you know, it's just looking at jobs, making sure that the contracts then that go to these projects, right? That there's fair labor standards, that we're not creating, you know, minimum wage jobs, but creating real career pathways into the green economy. Um, and then the last thing I just think, you know, we've got to be able to make sure that we're taking care of impacted workers too. So coal miners, folks who've been going to work every day to put the lights on for us the old way, we know there's a new way now. We've got to get to the new way. We've got to innovate but we can't leave them behind either. So to round us out, I want to ask, are you getting the political support that you need to put in place some of these solutions? I know not all of them come down to Congress or even other levels of government, but some of them really do. And it was interesting how the Fijian prime minister this morning at the Global Climate Action Summit event, he's the COP23 president, talked about, you know, 
political leaders have to ask themselves if they're not willing to act at the even the cost of their political career then why are they basically in that position i guess so what is your view on the politicians and the state of leadership on this yeah well you know it's not all on the politicians i'll say that i'm not an elected official i don't you know, see myself there. (laughs) But I say, you know, the people who are willing to do the hard work, I can't imagine that being a politician is a fun job. And to be able to make change, you've got to have your community behind you, right? And they've got to be there knowing that their community back home supports them. And I think that us as a movement, frankly, so it's much broader than just the elected officials, I think us as a movement are not united yet. And so even in the environmental movement, you have white mainstream environmentalists and then we have what we call the environmental justice community which frankly is code for all the communities of color you know and so and then that's just the enviro advocates you bring in business right and how they need to engage and and the role that they can play in this transformation and you bring in these other stakeholders um and we're just not there yet so i think we've got to align together on what we're asking and it'll make it a lot easier for the folks that are really there to do what we ask them to It's a great answer. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Josiah Neely, thank you for coming on the show. You are here with the R Street Institute. Tell us a little bit more about your organization and your role in it. Sure, and thank you for having me. Uh, So the R Street Institute is a nonpartisan research organization, think tank colloquially, Uh, And uh, we've been described as pragmatic libertarians, which I think is probably fair in that we are uh, generally fans of uh, free markets, competition, uh, light touch regulation. uh, But we believe in incremental policy change and we believe in uh, using those free market principles to solve pressing issues, whether it's criminal justice or energy, which is uh, my focus. Great. So we are at a carbon tax event today, um, and I know your organization has come out in support of a carbon tax, which is interesting because usually tax doesn't get the best reception. Right. That's the worst uh, thing about the carbon tax is the name. Especially for a libertarian audience, right? right? Exactly. Yeah. Yes. So why did your organization and why did you come around to supporting this policy? So our starting point is that uh, we're climate realists, so we accept that climate change is uh, happening, humans uh, are... Uh, a major contributing factor, et cetera, you know, d- down the line of the things that everybody says. Given that, we uh, wanted to see, well, wh- you know, what is the most market-friendly uh, way to address the risks and costs of climate change that doesn't result in bigger government? And our view is that a revenue-neutral carbon tax, one that would put a price on emissions to reduce those over time and encourage development of Uh, low or zero carbon technologies as replacements, Uh, but at the same time, using the revenue from that tax to replace existing taxes on things like work or investment in jobs, things that we want more of and that are discouraged through the current tax system, that could be a win-win for the uh, environment and the economy. So when I was coming in here, what I wanted to ask you about was what you make of the Scalise resolution that basically unsolicited came out and said, you know, carbon tax is a bad thing, hard stop. Um, And, you know, we've discussed that with with multiple people over multiple times. But on the way here, um, I saw that the uh, House Ways and Means Committee passed an extension of the tax law that they passed uh, late last year and basically made all the individual tax cuts permanent. 
realizing that's not related to carbon, my question to you would be, Republicans are obviously hyper-focused on cutting taxes, continuing to cut taxes, and keeping taxes low. So what does the prospect of a new carbon tax by any name do? Uh, you know, How do you deal with that? Sure. And I, I also like uh, cutting taxes. I want taxes to be as low as possible. Uh, I'm not an anarchist, so I recognize that some level of taxation is necessary. And so the question is, you know, where do you get the revenue from? I think that the, what, the, the way carbon tax could be uh, useful in that conversation is that a carbon tax allows you to cut other taxes more. However much that you would be able to cut just through spending cuts or deficit increases or whatever, additional revenue from a carbon tax allows you to do more in terms of reforms of the income tax, the corporate side, et cetera. So I think that that could be something that would be very uh, appealing to Republicans on that issue. So you were a skeptic in the past. Were you a skeptic of the carbon tax as a solution, or were you a skeptic of climate change? So I was never a skeptic of climate change per se. Uh, I always thought, I, I always accepted uh, uh, that it was happening and that it was pretty likely human beings were uh, a major factor. I was not a skeptic in that sense. Uh, I was a skeptic about uh, carbon tax as a solution, uh, partly just as a as a political matter. Would you really be able to get something that wouldn't devolve into a you know big tax and spend uh, type program and uh, you know things of that nature? And I kind of come around on that, uh, particularly as I learn more about you know the tax swap idea and the revenue neutral idea. Is that what you, like? What's the most effective way to change people's minds on this? Like you changed your mind. What yeah. what, what changed your mind and how do we change others? Uh, well, I, I would like to think that, um, you know, how I change my mind would be applicable to a lot of other people. That might not be true because I have a kind of weird uh, set of beliefs in that a lot of people, I think, uh, who are skeptics about climate change, Part of what's motivating that is they think, well, okay, if they admit that climate change is happening, then, you know, the dominoes are all going to fall over, fall over. And the next thing you know, they're going to be voting for Bernie Sanders and accept, you know, advocating for one world government. Right. You know, so they think, well, I don't even, you know, I don't even risk that. So I'm going to start over here and just say, yeah, it's not even, it's not even a problem. Right. So I do think that if to the extent that uh, conservatives, uh, free market people, libertarians, can offer up ways of addressing the risks and costs of climate change that don't end up in some left-wing place, but that are actually applying conservative principles and that, that wouldn't grow the size of government, that can get them to, you know, not only be on board with that, but it probably would even uh, make them more receptive to uh, the fact that climate change is happening to begin with. What are some of those examples of specific actions? Sure. So aside from the, the carbon pricing, for example? Yeah. Yeah. So there are, a, uh, there are a number of them that, that we have been working on. One, which is not something that you might naturally think of, but I think is very important, is increased electric competition, right? So parts of the country that have more competition in electricity have moved more rapidly towards cleaner energy sources and, and new technologies. And there's, there's a bunch of reasons for that, right? If you are a monopoly utility, you're a little cost insensitive, right? Uh, all of your costs get passed on automatically to, to rate payers. So you can keep an uneconomical un coal plant uh, in business. You, you might even add a bunch of, you know, expensive emissions control technology that would not pencil out in terms of the economics, but you don't really care. 
Plus, uh, you know, you ha there's a definite big uh, incumbent advantage, whereas the cleaner technologies or newer technologies, uh, the transfer happens a lot more when you have competition. Uh, so that's, that's, that would be one. Which Nevada is currently considering. That's right, yeah. And we have it, uh, uh, we have competition in Texas. It works very well for us. And we've got a lot of wind and have integrated it pretty well into the grid. And uh, we're on the cusp, I think, of uh, uh, major advances both in uh, solar and also in uh, demand response and in, in demand side technologies. Um, so that's, that's one. Another one that we have uh, looked at uh, is nuclear power. Right. And uh, obviously, there's a certain level of safety regulation that you need for nuclear power. However, some of the uh, regulatory hurdles that are put in place for nuclear are kind of envisioning old mega projects, right, that are probably they're unlikely to happen in the foreseeable future. So what we were looking what, what, what we have looked at is. Uh, for smaller reactors, micro-reactors, perhaps having a more streamlined regulatory process that is right-sized to the risks and requirements of that. In fact, if you're building a big reactor, part of the process of that is you can build a test reactor that is 10 megawatts, 20 megawatts. It's pretty small, but it's the size of a mega, uh, what could be a commercially viable reactor. It's the same in all, re all respects except that you're not actually making money on it. So, you know, the reactor's working, you're providing power, et cetera. Uh, and there's a, there's a streamlined regulatory process just to get that. And so that might be something that could be duplicated uh, for commercial reactors of a similar size and risk profile. A third uh, option, this is more on the adaptation side, right? So, so far we've been talking about the mitigation technologies, uh, but I do think that we also need to look at adaptation because global warming is already happening. It's going to continue to happen. We got to look at that. So one thing that we have long advocated is the first thing to do is for government to stop uh, subsidizing environmentally harmful behavior. The United States, we have a, a flood insurance program, for example, that, that provides low-cost insurance for people that live in flood-prone areas. You know, uh, there's, a, there's a logic behind that. You don't want to leave people with unable to get insurance. But the result of that is you have a lot more people that are moving uh, and living in areas that are vulnerable to flooding. It's kind of the opposite of what you would want. As the flood risks increase, you would want less development in, in those areas. But we're actually drawing people to places uh, where they're going to get flooded out, they're going to get hit by storms, etc. So uh, reforming that, removing the subsidies to do that, removing subsidies for development, and coastal wetlands that have a storm surge protection. Those are all things that you could do that would that would involve less. What about government. removing the subsidies for the production of fossil fuels? Would you be yeah. in favor of removing those? So you, you're talking about like uh, tangible tax, drilling costs. Tax. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, you know, percentage depletion. In Texas, we have a you know there's a there's a tax break for high cost natural gas, right? If you looked at the prices of natural gas lately, there actually is no high cost natural gas, but they still get it. <laughs> it's just called that. Um, so yeah, absolutely eliminating uh, eliminating those tax preferences, tax subsidies for fossil fuels, we would definitely be on board with. I just want to end with what kind of traction are these policies getting, either in conversations you're having directly in the broader ecosystem? Which among these do you think has this greatest chance of getting put in place in the next Congress, say? Mm -hmm. So some of these ideas uh, are not even federal. Like the, a lot of the 
uh, electricity policy is done at uh, the state level, for example. And that is one where we've actually seen a lot of encouragement and support. People haven't really been thinking about electricity reform as an issue, uh, since, you know, since the, there was a, a, a big spurt of it in the uh, in the, the 1990s that went away for a while, thanks to California. But now uh, people are starting to wake up to that again. And we've had a lot of interest in that, both from the free market community, conservative groups and policymakers, and also from the environmental community, which is increasingly recognizing that, you know, this is a good way to clean up the the grid and the, the energy system. So that's something that we've had a lot of positive reaction to. Do you get pushback from some others on the right, would you say? We do get some pushback on the right on a number of things. I think some folks on the right, they have typically viewed electricity through a lens of environmentalists versus utilities, right? So they think, well, if the environmentalists want something, the utilities don't want it, then the utilities must be right, right? And that's just an education process of reminding them that, uh, you know, we're not pro-business, we're pro-market, we're pro-competition. And to the extent that businesses are trying to insulate themselves from competition and pass costs on to consumers, that's not good, right? So we want to eliminate that. Uh, and that, you know, that's a process. Uh, sometimes there's an initial re- resistance, but frankly, people have come around pretty remarkably, I think, in just in the past couple of years on that. Great. Well, thank you so much for coming on and speaking with us. Yeah. Thank yeah, you thank for you. having me. Thank you. So we're joined by Sonia Agarwal. She's vice president of Energy Innovation. It's a San Francisco-based think tank that works on power sector transformation and a whole slew of other energy policy solutions. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. So we are talking about solutions in this episode. We're here at the Global Climate Action Summit. That is one of the big takeaways is what can we do? So we want to try and get at what those solutions are and how politically feasible they are. So you have a book coming out called Designing Climate Solutions that Energy Innovation uh, has put together. You, along with Hal Harvey, have written it. What are the key elements of that book? Can you run us through those? Sure. So our book looks at uh, all of the sectors where carbon emissions and other greenhouse gases are being produced. So thinking very practically, when you look at the economy, there's um, emissions from power plants, emissions from factories and industry, emissions from buildings, and emissions from transportation. So trying to look at each of those sectors of the economy and understand where are the emissions coming from, from a quantitative standpoint. So really looking, you know, what's, what's creating all this pollution, and then trying to figure out which policies can be used to transform those industries and economic sectors into ones that emit less carbon. So what's the most bang for your buck? When you, how do you kick it off in the book as the first real area of action? Honestly, I think the place to start is really looking at the numbers and looking at where the where the tons are where are the emissions coming from so to me that's actually the first place to look and then you see which policies and which economic sectors you want to target with a policy. And then as you start to move through that, then you can understand who makes the decisions about policies that govern that particular economic sector. And you quickly find that there's actually a very limited number of policymakers who actually are working on a day-to-day basis thinking about these particular economic sectors and beginning to start to work directly with those folks on um, specific policies with specific targets and design 
training them such that they take into account lessons from prior efforts in these areas and other jurisdictions is, I think, a great place to get practical and to get moving. Sonia, can you give us a few examples? Who are some of these top policymakers and what policies are you recommending? Yeah, absolutely. So, for example, in the electricity sector, um, we have in this country public utilities commissioners, which work at each of the state levels, and that's a relatively small number of people, right? I mean, if you're you're talking about 60 people total um, across the United States who make a lot of very impactful decisions about the trajectory of our entire electricity system. A lot of people don't even know what a PUC, Public Utility Commission, is. Yeah. Let alone how much power they have. Yeah, it's amazing, really. So the commissioners then, what is the action item there? Are you speaking then to the expert community, the activists, the academics to go in, get involved in wonky utility proceedings? Is that how it goes about? Or are you talking to everyday citizens to try and get engaged in the commission as well? How do you get at the commission piece of this? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think that, you know, first of all, understanding uh, what the commission is working on and kind of what the commission in your state is thinking about is a great place to start. For example, California just passed this 100% clean energy by 2045 uh, law now, which is very exciting. But all of these public utilities commissions are going to be the places where these types of high-level targets really get uh, put into action. So working with commissioners to be more specific about what exactly they're trying to get done, looking at policies like how utilities are motivated and get paid, how the wholesale power markets interact with these public utilities commissions, these kinds of topics. It does get pretty wonky pretty quickly, but it is where the rubber kind of hits the road as far as... Many of them are elected. Yeah. Right? True. Yeah. It's definitely a lot harder to get a momentum around, get involved in wholesale power pricing (laughs) rather than 100% renewables or 100% clean energy, right? It's just, if that's where we're at in the climate change action, I think it's going to be harder from a a broader momentum perspective, because again, it, it is getting wonkier as we get to the implementation piece of it. Do you think the people who like who want to get stuff done, who want to see progress, do you think they fully understand that that hand-to-hand combat is how you make progress? You know, we debate this all the time on this show, but we can rally around a central idea all we want. We can pat ourselves on the back and, you know, say we did a great job. But at the end of the day, if you're going to make a difference, whether it's a public utility commission, whether it's, a, you know, a small provision about energy and a larger energy bill at the federal level or the state level, in your experience, do the people who want to see these solutions implemented understand that that quiet hand-to-hand combat is where the action is? I think it really takes a combination of things, right? I mean, that quiet hand-to-hand combat wouldn't have any place if there weren't people asking for those uh, more ambitious and aspirational targets and policies in the first place. But I agree. I mean, I would encourage anyone who has this inclination toward like getting into economics or getting into engineering or getting into kind of this more detailed stuff to to, to get involved at that level because it is really there where things get written and actions start to get taken and real change happens on the ground. If you had a, like a genie and you had three wishes to accomplish these goals, what would they be? Um, wow. I mean, the genie thing, though, I mean, let's just uh, completely transform our economy and become <laughs> zero carbon tomorrow. I mean, there's no reason. So would that, be a, that would be a federal you know, you go to the Congress for that? Is that? 
well, I'd go to the genie first, but <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, a lot of the energy decisions do happen at the state level. So a lot of it is going to have to happen um, state by state. But I think for things in the transportation sector, for things as far as carbon pricing or a carbon target overall, that all could happen federally for sure. So you wouldn't reform the economy from the ground up in the sense that we'd be living in, you know, there is a whole thing around reforming the capitalist system of this nation without sounding too much like uh, I'm off, off the rocker here. Yeah, <laughs> like a Canadian. Um, but I mean, a lot of people do call for that kind of total ground up reformation of our systems. Can market based solutions get us all the way there? But you're, it sounds like you are talking more about our current system, but with some additional policies at the federal level on top of it. This is your genie wish. <laughs> um, well, let's see. The genie wish, I guess I would say it's not about having a worse quality of life. I mean, I think it's been really proven here in California. Um, we've seen larger than U.S. average growth in our economy over the last years since we passed our carbon tax bill back in 2006. And we've also at the same time seen a huge amount of emissions reductions. So I think it's not about choosing, you know, some lower economic quality of life or, you know, a lower carbon way of life. I think that it's definitely possible to have both. And that's actually what gets me really excited is that yeah, there's California's a ton of... proven that. Yeah, California has totally proven it so far. And I think there's a huge number of technologies um, and new business models that can deliver a low carbon, high quality of life. Um, so I wouldn't at all say it's, you know. Uh, you have to go to some extreme to really reform the economy from in some radical yeah. way. And I think the people who talk about that are the ones who are going to end up harming this effort most because people like me enjoy talking about sort of the ninja policy, like where can we focus, where can we make a difference? But then if someone says, you know what we need to do is destroy capitalism and reform our country, I'm going, I want nothing to do with that person or any of their ideas. That That is exactly what Republicans are scared of, is they're saying there is this large group of people who under the guise of climate change are trying to destroy everything we've built over the last you know, 230 years. Who, what are you talking about? No, no, no I, I don't think many of them exist. I don't think many of this, but Julia posed the question. And my point is that... Republicans like to create these cartoons that no, don't really well, exist. Hold on, hold on. <laughs> Julia just posed really. the question. And my answer to that question was, if someone come in, and there are some Looney Tunes who do that, but if they're thought of as representative of the climate movement, then you're going to create a lot of enemies. I don't think that's where we're at. I don't think people think of people who want to destroy capitalism as representative of the, of the climate movement. But if those people got a louder voice, I think that would set progress back so much further than we could possibly recover from. Well, we should note that as the Global Climate Action Summit takes place this week, there are counter protests happening, talking about how this conference and this effort is not going far enough. So yeah, I don't think it's the mainstream climate movement, but there are definitely people out there saying we need a bigger overhaul than anyone's even talking about. But as we all know, that would have a, a lot of political, you know, trouble. So the genie list, to be clear, number one, you're saying zero carbon. Is there a date you have in mind? You know, you guys have been studying this. What what are you what are you suggesting? Yeah, I guess it's hard because the genie framework me means that I feel like we should just ask for it tomorrow. But I think when we've done this um, kind of economic analysis, um, we've seen that it's quite possible to bend down emissions quite a lot by 2050. Define 
quite possible mm-hmm. bend down a lot. Those yeah. are two very different things than zero. Yeah. So in this book, what we talk about is um, an 80% reduction by 2050. So that's annual in 2050. But actually, it's important to remember that the- an 80% reduction of greenhouse gas emissions? Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. Based on what baseline? What baseline level? So we've done a projection of taking into account how different countries are going to be uh, developing over the next this is global. several decades. This is global yes, emissions. Got yes, it. yes, yes. Although I will say we have a much more specific analysis for the United States as well. What's covered in this book is global. So it really tries to look at cumulative emissions between now and 2050 to tie that to uh, the target of um, staying under two degrees. Uh, that's what we've analyzed in this book. And then it, it breaks it down sector by sector. Where are the emissions coming from in the reference scenario if we did nothing more than what we've already done today? And then what are the policies that we can actually use to drive down emissions sector by sector? And how much might we expect to get out of each of the sectors? So it really tries to go through that at a, at a practical level. Because I think Brandon's trying to conflate what you would have a genie do uh-huh. and what you believe is possible. Yes. And I want to make sure for the sake of this discussion, <laughs> we understand like, I'd ask for a lot of things if I had a genie, but if you had to design a policy sans genie, would you be shooting for uh, zero carbon emissions or would you be shooting for that bend, that curve you talked about? Mm -hmm. I think over the long haul, shooting for zero makes a ton of sense. I think that there are things that we can do today that will make a big difference. For example, carbon pricing is hugely important. I think if we could get that, I think it would make a huge difference. Um, Of course, I think it makes more of a difference in, for example, power and industry, where there's a, a limited number of actors who are really responding to price as opposed to uh, transportation or buildings where the price is not usually what is causing people to make decisions about their behavior. So that's one. Um, Another one is renewable portfolio standards or clean energy standards in the electricity system. Also transforming the way that the institutions run our electricity system so that it's more flexible and we actually see the decarbonization benefits of the clean energy. In transportation, fuel economy standards are extremely important and I think sometimes they get left behind. Electrification of vehicles is another huge piece. What can we do there? How can we accelerate the electrification of vehicles? So there's a few different things. Um, One on the vehicle side, giving incentives for people to uh, purchase electric vehicles. I think right now our biggest barrier is just the upfront cost difference. But then once you own the electric vehicle, it's quite cheaper than actually driving a fuel vehicle. Do you think that's a bigger barrier than lack of recharging infrastructure? Because to me, that that is a far bigger... You know, when you're buying a new car, you know you're taking on an expense. Mm -hmm. To me, the bigger issue is, could I actually use my car? Absolutely, yes. And you're right there on like the second piece of it. So there's the vehicle side and then there's the infrastructure side. And the infrastructure side, um, funnily enough, brings us right back to that Public Utilities Commissioner conversation we were having earlier where this very limited number of people actually has a lot of control over the decisions we make in terms of um, also offering the right infrastructure and charging capabilities for people who are trying to buy these vehicles and, and actually drive them. So we we hear a lot actually about transportation and the electricity sector. To me, what the trickier parts are going to be is industry, things like natural gas and heating and buildings. A lot of people don't even realize a gas stove in their home means they've got a fossil fuel hookup. So there's all these disconnects. And so those those sides of this seem like they're going to be harder to get at, especially as we get toward true decarbonization. What are your policy recommendations on those fronts? 
Yeah, that's a great, great point. Um, and I'm so glad you raised it. One is just around building codes, which also sounds boring um, along the same lines as a lot of uh, the, the kind of detailed stuff that really we need to do if we want to reduce emissions. But Although California got a new solar roof mandate through their yeah, building codes. True. It, yeah. And I think there's a, there's a lot we could do to make building codes electrification ready, um, where we actually start to think about the building as a part of the integrated system, where we have... Things that are electrified within the building, we can stop actually delivering natural gas to to those buildings, but also to think about how they can be a resource on the grid to provide flexibility through things like demand response or when are you heating up your water and, you know, that sort of thing can actually help uh, balance renewables at the generation side of the grid. Also, I guess one other thing that I recently learned that I thought was interesting was that A lot of states actually have a mandate for their utilities. It's this obligation to serve that means that even if a developer of a new real estate development wants to make it all electric, the utility is kind of required to deliver a natural gas line to that development. And so even starting to get into some of those requirements and think about them, given the the kind of new direction that things are going now with electrification, I think would, would make a huge difference itself. So to wrap up here, how do you get momentum around this? We kind of touched on that these are wonkier solutions, and we deal a lot with the politics of it. You know, there's a midterm election coming up. It's hard to get these issues to resonate in that kind of a setting, and yet people being elected this fall will have a huge key role to play in, in enacting the kinds of solutions you're talking about. So how do you, how do you get more enthusiasm and, and maybe broader uh, engagement on this? I think that for elected officials, setting higher level targets and then sending the details of implementation to these public utilities commissions or to some of these other agencies that can get more into this wonky stuff makes a lot of sense. Anything that goes for the global stage as well? So our view on that is that a lot of the decisions are still being made at the domestic level. So it's all about going and focusing where the emissions are coming from. So there's 80% of all global emissions come from 20 countries. So if we can work in those 20 countries to get policies passed in the highest emitting sectors, then I think we've really started to get our arms around what is um, otherwise a problem with many, many, many different endpoints. <laughs> are you hopeful? I am very hopeful. I mean, I think that the fact that we have technology that can actually deliver higher quality of life uh, and also lower emissions is really a huge part of it. And it's really about scaling the technology now than it is about trying to make up something magical. So that gives me a lot of hope. So we don't need a genie after all. No magic necessary. I wish we had a genie to make some of these Republicans disappear. It's just mean-spirited. I don't even know. This is not This is not in the interest of comedy, is it? I mean, now I feel like I don't even know if I want to work with you on making the world a better place. I'll make it a better place all by myself. Sonia, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. We really thank appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Great to be here. And that's our podcast. Thank you for listening. The elections are coming up soon, and we're thinking about how to wrap up season one of Political Climate. As we do that, we want to hear from you. What did you like about this season? What would you like to see more of? Tweet us your feedback at poly underscore climate, P-O-L-I underscore climate on Twitter. In the meantime, remember to subscribe to Political Climate on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever it is that you listen. If you like it, leave us a review. 
Thanks so much again and until soon. 